Tig H, everybody. Tig, take your time, man. Fucking go for it. <laughs> Ula boss. Thank you, Mark, for that lovely intro. Uh, thank you very much, guys, to everyone who's here. I am unfamiliar with this format, and yet I feel that I'm quite familiar with it uh, almost immediately. It appears to be a version of AA without the kind of hassle of the Our Father, which is actually something that I personally think should be gone from um, AA, and it's something that comes up in my group a lot. Um, but anyway, that's that's a by the by. Uh, thank you for having me, and I have no idea what I'm going to say, but that usually means that I'll probably tell the truth. Um, normally, if I'm speaking in any recovery circles, I have an understanding myself of my higher power, and I ask my higher power to guide me in what I'm about to say so that I don't lie, um, because I'm prone to lying, and I've no bother saying that. And it's not that I'm a liar and I want to flagellate, self-flagellate about that. Or I'm not saying I'm a bad person or I'm a good person. But from my childhood, which I'll get into in a bit, I started lying and I was very good at it. I was quite skillful at it, I feel. Um, And that made me, enabled me to create a nice kind of fantasy world for myself and to get people around me to do what I would like them to do. And I know that sounds kind of probably a bit dark and whatnot, but that is just my experience of addiction. It really just changed my worldview and it just became about me trying to survive in the world. And if you're going to survive in the world and you're pulling knacks and you're up to all sorts, you just have to lie to survive. And that was just my experience. So I'll take you right back to the start. I was born in Cork City in Ireland. It was a humble uh, upbringing, I would say. From an early age, the first time that I encountered James Joyce, I remember reading that Joyce had come from a family that had money. And as his childhood progressed and as he got older, they lost a lot of their money and they ended up going into shitty, shittier and shittier gaffes. And that was kind of my experience because before I came along, I was an afterthought in the family. And my uh, before I got there, my siblings, by all accounts, had a borderline middle class experience where my dad had a nice job in Ford's which is one of the two big employers in Cork at the time. And um, so back then they had almost like borderline kind of middle-class background. By the time I came along, Ford's was closing or had closed. My dad went from having this really secure job that the playwright Conal Creedon described as a job for life suddenly was just out the window. And even though he was industrious, he just never really kind of got the work that we once had back going again. So I suppose what I'm saying in a long winded way is that by the time I came along, the family's fortunes had tanked, um, which I took personally. I wasn't happy about that at all. Like uh, I felt like they had a good run of it. And I I was dealt a bad hand because by the time I came along, I was kind of getting handouts to get through school. And I went to college with the, again, lots of kind of poor, poor boy kind of handouts and stuff. And I was conscious about that because. I was hanging out with people in school and in college that didn't get handouts. And I felt like I was kind of like the token poor kid. Again, keeping in mind that this is all very relative. I mean, there was people that I was hanging out with that lived in flats and I lived in a house. So relatively speaking, I was middle class to them. And obviously I don't need to tell anybody that the guys living in flats were probably in a good position compared to people living in absolute abject actual poverty in the global south. But I'll try and stay off my geopolitical uh 
soapbox for as long as I can. Um, my childhood, even though we didn't have a whole lot of money, though, and there was a lot of alcoholism in the family. Uh, my mother was was an alcoholic. Um, my brother was an alcoholic and there was alcoholism just kind of everywhere. So there was chaos, but I was often happy within the chaos. I enjoyed the fact that my family was a bit wacky on one level um, and you wouldn't know what would happen next. I suppose I didn't enjoy, though, and this is the key thing with my story, I suppose. I didn't enjoy that from an early age, I would go through spells of what I would describe now as uncomfortableness. So I'm not sure where the obsession came with losing my mind. But from an early age, I had a morbid fear that at any moment I could lose my mind. My mom was an extremely anxious uh, person and she instilled in me generalized anxiety about the world and the way it worked, I suppose. But there was really specific reference points for local crazy so there was this woman who used to have white hair and she was like mad and the phrase we used to use for it in kind of working class cork at the time was her nerves are at her so my mom would say there's this woman across the road uh be careful with her because her nerves are at her and she pointed in the direction of this token kind of crazy um and it was i don't know where it came from but it was instilled in me very early on that that's the one place you didn't want to get you didn't want to be mad you didn't want to be carted off by men in white coats that was just terrifying so when I was really young actually I was scared of drinking and definitely scared of drug taking there was a documentary about Sir Henry's nightclub which I would go on to love as I got older but when I was a kid there was a documentary about it and on tv and I was terrified because it was like flashing lights and people taking drugs and losing their sense of where they are and inhibitions out the window and I felt like that was definitely a surefire way to potential madness where you're going to get carried away by men in white coats. So this kind of kind of palette of fears and phobias that my mother had, they were kind of all out on display all the time when I was young. And I kind of just ended up picking and choosing which ones worked or did not work for me at will. I ended up kind of like in school and probably my first encounter of anything approaching comedy was I used to kind of tell my mom stories to try and make her feel better. So she was like really anxious and unsettled kind of all the time, really. And sometimes I would lie down with her and I'd tell her stories and shenanigans that had gone on in school that day. And I would always make up stuff, you know, so it would be the actual story. And then I'd make up like an extra 10, 20, 30, 40 percent. She'd laugh. When she'd laugh, I would feel like she was appeased in some way. And then that was kind of job done for me. Um, I'd made my mom feel good. Um, I wasn't really sure how I was feeling, but I was definitely making my mom feel like a bit better. And that, that was good for me. To go back to this uncomfortableness, you know, I'll give you like an example because it's hard to put my finger on it. First of all, it's working class Cork in the 80s. Nobody's talking about mental health. So like I didn't feel, you know, I didn't go into my mom or my dad and say, well, I'm experiencing a bit of anxiety there, guys. And I would say a bit of depression. And um, what do you think? Like, what do we do about it as a family? Will we go to the doctor or should I go for counselling or whatever? It was just everything was hidden and everything was brushed under the carpet. So when I started to feel uncomfortable and this kind of anxiety would be there in the stomach and in the throat and this kind of worry, 
and like give you a couple examples of how it would manifest i'd be like oh the garden playing soccer with buddies of mine and then this kind of gloom would descend over myself and i feel anxious and i would be kicking the ball in a way where there'd be kind of like my legs felt like they were kind of like pins and needles kind of effect and there was no physical reason for it to happen or nothing had actually in the physical world had happened to produce this effect like the cause wasn't readily perceivable I then started to think oh shit there's something up my brain like there's something up in my mind I'm going mad and I'm going to end up like the woman with the white hair and um, my nerves are at me and you fucking didn't want to be in that category um, I also remember like in something that's in the that I wrote about, which is, um, you know, being upstairs and like watching TV with my dad and just like strangely feeling that if my dad left the room that he wasn't coming back. And like I wouldn't have been like small, small at this point. I would have been like maybe eight or nine um, where you would imagine that sense of separation anxiety would would have ceased. Like I wasn't an infant. I wasn't a toddler. Um and like following my father out to the shed just to make sure that he was kind of coming back. So kind of irrational fears and phobias, um, or at least they felt irrational at the time, somehow uh, connected to my mother. But again, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. I just thought like my mom is kind of off her game. Her nerves are at her. Um, I'm a bit mental. I didn't see the connection between the two. And then crucially, it wasn't there all the time. So you'd feel anxious and you'd feel the uncomfortableness and you'd feel the strangeness and, oh shit, I'm losing my mind. Then it would go away again and I'd just play soccer or I'd go hang out with my buddies or and I'd have a completely normal few months and I was probably reasonably good at school and I wasn't an outsider much and I was probably, if you looked at me when I was in school, you're like, oh, that's just a regular kid. There's nothing interesting or, you know, we don't need to intervene in any kind of medical way here. Um. And that was kind of my childhood. I had older brothers who were hunter-gatherer types, you know, fighting and drinking. And they were kind of ostensibly kind of tough guys. They were cool. I was not like that at all. I was kind of reading poetry under a tree type of fella. But I was happy enough in being a kind of a bit of an oddball in the family, like happy enough. I knew I wasn't like them and I was kind of doing my own thing but I was kind of shy and I was nervy and I was fastidious uh, and I was kind of a good boy in the way that they were kind of bold boys and again partly the good boy routine was to appease my mother you know I'm good I'm not going to cause you all the worries that particularly one of my brothers did I'm going to get good results and I'm going to get gold stars and I'm going to tell you stories and assuage you and you're going to go to sleep and you're going to be happy and everything's going to be fine fast forward to junior cert night uh, in in Ireland being like the first state exam and it's the night of that I hadn't drank up to that point some of my friends had but I think I was probably what was I 15 maybe yeah probably 15 so relatively speaking probably a late starter where I grew up like there was people drinking at 13 14 not a bother and I remember going out the lock in Cork absolute bag of nerves like momentous occasion I might be about to drink like and I can still, and I'm getting excited now thinking about it. Like I feel like the hair is coming up on my skin as I'm talking about it because it was just the most momentous thing because I had this inkling that whatever was wrong with me, um, I wondered could this stuff kind of help because literally everyone I knew, family, community, everyone seemed to be having a top time when they were drunk. 
Um, now, they might end up at the end of, end of the evening kicking each other's heads in, getting arrested, <laughs> cheating on their wives, cheating on their husbands, blah, blah, blah. But like it definitely took away this kind of rawness that I certainly had anyway. Um, so went out the lock. Um, my buddy went and got us cans. He, he, the guy who looked the oldest. And he came round the corner with a bag, a Galvin's red and white bag of cans. And I genuinely would never forget the feeling in my life. Thought my heart was going to come out my mouth because it was finally going to be doing it like. And I started uh, drinking a can, absolutely terrified. And within the space of a few sips, I felt transformed. You know, it's the only way I can put it, like an absolute transformation in my little pretentious head. I was reading some short stories at the time and getting into literature and stuff. And like genuinely Kafka's metamorphosis is the only thing that that could compare to it. Like, and I was just, you know, I just turned into this instead of being a giant bug, though, I was like a superhero. I suddenly was like not worrying about what I was saying or doing at all. I wasn't so intimidated by approaching women. I just felt like I was like, you know, Mark, like kindly called me good looking at the start there. Like it was the first time in my life I felt <laughs> that I was and I was charismatic and like limitless power, you know, the kind of way, you know, the way later in life when people I've heard the way people describe, I never really got into cocaine much but people would say it would have that transformative effect on them i only ever really got that from drink i would have had like amazing experiences on other substances but never that sense of like i've arrived you know and i think they say that in the in the a book like i've arrived and it's one of the sentences that i would identify with most so i was on bollard standing up on bollards i was you know went into the nightclub with my buddy um up on his shoulders like a superhero flying through cork like into the nightclub and um my whole life changed my whole world changed after that i came into school the next day and someone called me an alcoholic uh which back then was just a badge like you know a badge of honor i didn't see any connection to the alcoholism going on in my family and the way in which i had been described here they were two totally separate things and i went on my merry way from there really and then from from that moment on it was like the feeling of having transformed like you're kind of chasing that feeling again and again and again I've heard other people say it's never quite like that the first time not my experience like it was quite like the first time for years for, for me because for a long long time uh, alcohol worked like really really well it wasn't like this one-off thing that's like you know, some sort of shimmering whatever that you're trying to chase again. It was like it worked very well for ages. Throughout the rest of my teens, I was trying to manage school as best I could with the fact that I knew I knew, now had this new thing in my life. Very shortly afterwards, I started taking drugs as well, um, ecstasy mostly. I loved ecstasy because if I do say so myself, at the heart of whatever it is that ails me, I just want to connect. I love connecting with other people. So when I took Coke, for instance, I had this feeling of, no, like I have this cockiness, like I'm definitely cocky. I've created that for myself, this kind of ridiculous ego. The last thing I need is to be more cocky. Like that's not going to work at all. And the few times that I did take cocaine, I just very quickly end up in fights and I'm not much of a fighter. So that was no crack. Um, 
whereas alcohol just had that feeling of security and then ecstasy had this feeling of a like complete connection just want to run around and hug everyone and love everyone and we're all on this adventure together and i i loved that like that was a really addictive kind of feeling um so but i suppose what i'm saying is like i was trying to manage the drinking and drug taking very early on which again looking back on it is weird i don't think there was anyone in their leaving cert year that that i was chatting to anyway and we all had started drinking we were all started having great crack but i was thinking okay if i'm going to do my exams well i'm going to have to stop drinking completely for the two months run up to doing my leaving cert like i've subsequently learned that normal so-called normal drinkers don't think like that at all you know i had to plan for life know that alcohol was in my world um, because the two things did not coexist well together at all. It was from an early age, it was one or the other. Either I'm drinking at the moment and I'll be drinking till Wednesday or I'm working and I'm living my life at the moment so I can't drink at all. Um, and that's not being melodramatic. That's literally the way it was early on. And because I was good at school and I had this good boyism, you know, at will, I could get away with it for quite a long time. It would just be like, oh, like he's just a little bit wild. He's just off on one, but he's going to come around again and he's going to be grand. Then my dad died unexpectedly when I was 18. And that was a complete shift again in my mentality from I'm drinking. I'm going into this kind of like superhero world when I'm drinking and I'm kind of managing life a bit over here to this kind of darkness came over me then where I felt like, OK, I've been really given a shit hand here. My mom is a basket case. My father was the only person really, truly on earth that I actually respected. Um, I just looked up to him so, so much. And then he was like unfairly taken from me. And this kind of meism was really strong. Now it was really rampant at this age. That is a really bad hand I've been dealt there. Um, I think I'm actually just going to do whatever I want now going forward. I've tried being a good boy and you can kind of all just go and fuck yourselves now. That's basically the way I felt from about 18 for most of the way through my 20s, feeling like the world owed me something. So uh, buckle up like. Um, and that was the way my 20s went, I suppose. I had a child along the way. And again, you know, I absolutely adored my daughter. But as my addiction started to grow, you know, this good boy-ism where I would have my daughter and even after myself, and my partner split up, I'd be kind of changing nappies. I'd be kind of going for walks. I love the optics of being a dad. I love people seeing me being a dad like that kind of really appealed to me. But because my addiction was getting stronger and stronger and my need to get rid of my uncomfortableness was getting stronger and stronger. I found that as time went on, my daughter became a bit of a novelty that I could no longer sustain. And I went from, I think I drank once the first year of her life to the second or third year, spitting up with my partner, uh, getting into another relationship inside a week. And I genuinely mean a week. And my drinking and drug taking going off the radar so much that I went to my first recovery meeting in 2007. So that would only have been a few months after I'd spit up with my partner. I went to my first recovery meetings with my brother who I felt was bringing me to recovery meetings because he wanted to be my buddy. I thought that he thought that I was cool and that he wanted to bring me to the place where he was going so that we could hang out more. And I hope that gives you an illustration as to how absolutely delusional I was. I didn't see anything in my behavior being 
addiction orientated at all. Um, I just thought people just wanted to get me into their club. Um, I was absolutely delusional to just move back for a second when you're a kid and there's trauma in the house and your mother is regularly falling over and you're having to pick her up and you're getting up to do exams the next day and you build up this resentment against her and you feel like you're the poor, the token poor boy and you feel like you're a lunatic and you feel like your nerves are at you. There's one of two ways to go in my experience. One is to drown in that and to be destroyed by it or the other is to remove yourself from it i think they don't they call it um i can't remember the term in psychology that they, they use for it but this idea of not actually being there and that's the route that i went down so i created this false ego for myself where i was this kind of superhero and um, i was class i was like you know going to get all the girls and win all the fights and i was going to be a star um and that ego driven false version of myself was very very useful until it stopped working you know there's actually a couple of guys in cork they're called the two norries who, who i think do fantastic work and james often says and i've been in workshops with him where he says that heroin for a long time saved his life and i would feel that way about alcohol as well and he says that it's you know it's often he often gets a bit of pushback on it because you you're kind of going into schools kind of saying guys heroin is brilliant like you know <laughs> you know you should fucking definitely check heroin out but of course that's not the point the point is you know if you've loads of trauma and you don't know what to do with yourself and you get to the point where you feel kind of suicidal and then the substance comes in and it just completely rescues you and it's like a a kind of a, a safety net and it helps you for a long time that's exactly how I felt because. All I knew for sure, and apologies now, I know I'm jumping around the place, but all I knew for sure was that regardless of what mood I was in, when I drank, it would take the edge off that mood. So if I felt depressed, I'd feel a good bit better. If I felt elated, but in not in a healthy way, it would just kind of chill that out as well. It was just an absolute cure-all. Um, so I'll fast forward a little bit. I was able to hold it together a bit, see my daughter a bit for my 20s, but things were getting increasingly more and more hairy and I would say mentally. So I could get into trouble with the law irregularly. I would lose jobs. I had some good work opportunities with RT when I was young, younger, um, obviously still young. And uh, I would lose them all and I wouldn't really care. I, I suppose I wouldn't care enough. I mean, I, I'd obviously have the trauma of being let go or I could see people like would give me an initial gig or you do some short films with people and then they'd stop contacting you because you're supposed to turn up at a certain time and you don't um you know I came into RT one day like to start rec pre-recording a live show and I had gotten my head kicked in in a holiday in Riga so instead of being part of the show one of the staff cleaned out my cut and basically just tended to my wounds rather than being able to go on. Now, it was a piece of shit kids show. Like, I'm not making myself out to be Killian Murphy. But still, like, I was behaving in a kind of a way that, you know, you'll only get so much goodwill before people are kind of going like, no, this guy is just a fucking calamity. Like, um, but the sad thing to say about my own addiction and my own experience of trying to assuage this uncomfortableness all the time was that as long as my mental health wasn't completely destroyed, I was willing to keep going. So I, you know, 
through my 20s and up to the start of my 30s, I wasn't allowed to see my daughter. As I say, I'd lost loads of work opportunities, some of them really significant. I was living in a piece of shit gaff in Douglas Street in Cork where the ceiling was genuinely falling down. Um, and if my mood was still okay to go out drinking, I honestly, even today, I honestly don't think I would have stopped. What happened to me was that I had a spiritual stroke, mental collapse. I almost had like a spiritual breakdown or something and certainly a nervous breakdown because um, I've been tipping away throughout my 20s, just off it for a few months, lick the wounds, go back on it, stop taking drugs, uh, go back and take certain drugs. The, the ecstasy experiment finally was gone because every time I was taking ecstasy, the come downs were getting worse and worse and worse and worse throughout my 20s into my early 30s that I genuinely thought I just can't cope with these come downs anymore. I'm going to actually just take my life genuinely. So they were gone. And as long as my mood was going to stay relatively OK, I think I just would have kept drinking. I just had become I had kind of signed up for a life where I was going to be one of those lads who just drinks as much as he can and does his bit, gives a bit of money to the ex when he can and fucking just sits in a bar suit and talks about all the things that he would have liked to have done. And I was kind of okay with that because I love drinking, but more importantly, I couldn't genuinely imagine a life without drinking. I mean, like, what would I do? What would I talk about? How would I think? How would I behave when I went to parties or if I had to go to functions? You know, what would I hold in my hand? What would I talk about from the night before? Like, it was just a complete and utter... There was no space in my brain where I could even imagine what that would be like. So in my early 30s, in this piece of shit gaff, the girl I was living with, uh, one of about four or five in the house, she was amazing. She worked hard. She cleaned up after herself. She had clean clothes. She did washing. She filled out forms. Genuinely all stuff that was unbelievable to me it was so impressive I just couldn't understand how somebody would be able to have a fully functional life as a fully functional adult when I was completely falling apart she looked at me with a level of disgust in her eyes one day which really took me back because we got on really well but I was in a I was in the front room when she came home one day and there was a bunch of likely lads with me fellas of my own ilk there was bags empty bags of drugs on the ground um cans we'd been there for I don't know how many days I, there was no work with any of us. Um, and I suddenly realised, oh, I've now become the lad who is at the party and he's too old. You know, the kind of lads for years I would have, you know, you're at the party and it's like, why is this lad in his 40s here? Like, this is pathetic. You know, I was I was going to be that guy. And uh, it scared the shit out of me. And it scared the shit out of me so much, not that day or not that night, but in the in the next couple of weeks, I just had a complete breakdown. Um, the anxiety that I'd always tried to keep at bay basically swallowed me up. That's the way it felt anyway. I'd always had these little tricks. Most of them would be just get wrecked. But I'd have like, you know, do a bit of yoga or do fucking meditation or whatnot. There was no putting this anxiety jack back in the box. And I solidly for two or three months felt like I was going to either completely lose my mind or take my life. And it came to a head in 2015 where I went to the CUH in Cork because I genuinely was just terrified that I was going to take my life. I rang somebody who was, I was doing a bit of counselling at the time and I rang the counsellor and said, look, I'm, I'm terrified here. 
and he just said just go to hospital just literally just go to hospital it was the only advice he gave me and I talked to the psychiatrist and you know what and I really mean this I was so full of my own bullshit from this false ego kind of shit like that I made up when I was a kid I was so full of my own bullshit that I genuinely thought there was something special up with me that was more than addiction I thought that this psychiatrist <laughs> who I eventually got to speak to would say oh yeah this is new actually like we're going to take you into a room and I think you've developed a new mental illness and we're going to give you some new drug to heal it and then in time you're going to help millions of people um who will now have this illness after you've had it <laughs> I was just like oh looking back in it like you know but I don't beat myself up too much because I was just trying to survive. But actually what he said was, you know, have you ever had any treatment for addiction? Like, and I was like, yeah, loads. Um, I've been to loads of meetings. I just don't, don't stick with it. And he said, oh, you might just try, maybe it might be worth trying treatment of some description again. And I just left with a prescription for, for tablets to stop you from taking your life really, which is basically what it felt like Seroquel was like. It was just knock me out. Uh, I'd wake up and I'd feel kind of a bit numb for a few days. And actually, that's what I needed at the time. I just needed to kind of take the edge off being alive as me in the world until I could actually get some treatment. Like, And again, for me, that was going to actual like AA meetings. Like They worked very well for me, but that was only part of what I was doing. The main thing I was doing actually in that period in 2015 was I was shutting my mouth because I felt like I had the answer for everything. Anytime anyone tried to help me with anything, I was just like, nah, nah, I know better here. I just wish they'd stop talking and I'll I'll sort it out. Um, there was a friend of mine actually at the time said, and I still think of, think of it and I often share it, you know, for a know-it-all like me, for somebody who thought they always had the answer that I, you know, I felt like I must be adopted or something. This makes no sense that I'm from this family of, of idiots and lunatics when I'm so much better and I know the answers to everything, you know. This friend of mine said, like, if you have the answer to everything and you're in your early 30s now, you're not working, you're largely unemployable, you're not allowed to see your kid and you, the house you're living in has literally fallen down. Like, if you have all the answers, how come all this shit's going on in your life? And it's hard to kind of deny the, the kind of truth of that or something. I felt like, do you know what? I might just start listening to people. And for me, I started listening to people and I started to develop a relationship with a power greater than myself that I have to say has been a long drawn out process that started properly in 2015. We're now nearly 10 years later and it's really in the last couple of years and particularly the last year that I feel a really strong connection. I have lost the idea of it being a god in the sky or somebody that I'm going to find in a church. I've even lost the idea of some of the traditionalists, I suppose, in a particularly like that it is, you know, you know, a Christian God or, 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 you know, the God of our childhood, I think is the way some people put it for me. Like it's inside myself. I did some meditation and then I eventually got trained in doing transcendental meditation. And there's this feeling of stillness inside myself when I do transcendental, transcendental meditation, it's just all the busyness of life and all the shit and all the me thinking about myself and the self-obsession and what does this person think of me and how am I coming across here? And that all that stuff just kind of stops and I just go to a peaceful place within myself through this kind of technique. Um, 
that to me feels like God. That to me feels like a higher power. So I've, and this is just for me now, it's just my experience. Instead of looking up when I'd be seeking God, I've started to look down or look inside myself because I believe that it's in me and it's in everyone. It's in all of you. Um, And that was a complete and utter game changer because finding a relationship with a power greater than myself, dealing with the shit that I'd done through a program of action allowed me to finally get free from the prison of my own mind. And I realized that before drinking, during drinking and after drinking, my problem was centered on self-obsession. I know I didn't understand for a long time that like you could be off thinking about yourself all day. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you think, you know, someone said, oh, my God, you've got a big ego. That doesn't mean that you're sitting down thinking, aren't I so great? For me, a big ego is just literally just sitting down thinking about me. How does this person think about me? How does that person think about me? What will I do now next week? What will I do? You know, what you know, what can I do to show that person that I'm actually like this when I fear that they think that I'm a bit like that? Like, with a head like that, you'd have to drink. So something has to replace alcohol for a person like that and for me the only thing i found consistently and it works through other people for sure but it's some version of a connection with a power greater than myself which to kind of sum up that relationship it's allowing me to free myself from this kind of self-obsession that i've talked about and this kind of this mindset that just kind of goes round and round and round and round and round on me like and it doesn't come naturally to me like that's why it's a program and that's why I had to kind of be trained through meditation and I say through this this program of action I had to be trained to not think about me because I want to think about me I want to think about me all the time I wake up in the morning and my first thought is about me and my needs and am I being respected enough and did my partner you know say the right thing at the right time to me is somebody having a pop off me you know I came from a family where we're always on the lookout for people like that are having a pop off us like my brother is always on the lookout for you know my brother will like reality check conversations he's had with me kind of say do you think that fella that we were talking to earlier was he having a pop off me (laughs) you know and I had to just put all that bullshit down like because if he is having a pop off me a, he's not, I'm certainly not having a pop off me because what I have found the hard way is that all the stuff that I'm thinking about, is this person thinking about this? Is my daughter, what did my daughter mean when she said that now? Like, is she having a pop off something I did 10 years ago? 99 times out of 100, everyone's just thinking about themselves. Like they're not thinking about you at all. They couldn't give a shit about you in a nice way. And even if they are having a pop off you, it doesn't matter. So I'm coming to the end of what I'm going to say now and I'm going to say something positive about drugs uh, again. So... I had a beautiful experience on mushrooms in so-called recovery because in so-called recovery, I wasn't, obviously it's not like stars in the rise. You don't like, you weren't a drinker and then you walk through the stars in the rise door and suddenly you're a new person. It's much more, you know, it's much more amiable and fluid than that. Uh, I felt I got I had good recovery at a point in my life. And then I started taking magic mushrooms again because I felt I wanted to enhance this spiritual experience that I was having. And I wanted to connect further with God. And that did happen. I would be off my game on mushrooms, walking around fields with buddies of mine. And I had a beautiful, profound experience one time when I was with two good buddies of mine. We'd taken large doses of magic mushrooms 
and I had just defecated in the forest, which if you haven't done it on mushrooms, I would highly recommend is one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my life. And I walked <laughs> and I was walking down this this path with buddies of mine and I had this profound, like clear as day moment where I just realized, oh, my God, I'm not that important. So I've been inserting myself in all these situations for years and worrying about, like, you know, how I'm coming across and how did that person feel when I said this? And I was like, I'm not that important at all. Like, and I remember just lifting my head and I said to the lads, I said, guys, I'm not that important. And at that moment, I realized that they'd walked ahead. They 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 hadn't even waited for me. <laughs> they were doing their own thing. Like, you know, they hadn't even noticed that I was with them. And uh, that was just a perfect moment for me. But because I'm an addict, because, sorry, because I'm a person who has addictive uh, traits, I then found myself taking magic mushrooms uh, the next week on my own and then taking a small amount on a Saturday when I was going in town and taking a bit to write. And now I'm taking a bit to do comedy. And now I'm taking a bit after comedy and I'm taking a bit before I go to bed. And for me, this is just my experience. I can't have nice things. <laughs> you know, if it's something that I'm potentially going to get addicted to, like I will, you know. So I think there's, is it Terrence McKenna? I think is his name is like, one of the connoisseurs uh, in this part of the world anyway of the mushroom experience and I think I remember hearing hearing him speak about you know when you when you get the answer hang up the phone and that's the way I feel about the spiritual thing like through lots of pain through unbelievable amounts of pain nearly all self-created through a good bit of CBT which I would highly recommend uh, through meditation through dealing with my own shit and making amends for the absolute fucking carnage that I caused through doing all those things, I encountered a higher power. I couldn't describe it to you really, but I know it's in me. I know it's real. Uh, it's as real as the fucking version of me without it anyway, much more real. And when I'm connected to it, I tend to not think about myself that much and do things for other people, not so I can get an article about it in the Echo, but just to do it because it's the right thing. And when that connection is there, I don't need magic mushrooms, actually. And I don't need to go back drinking. And I don't need to get people to tell me I'm a great lad on the internet or off the internet because I have it. It's all there and it's all intuitive. So I had to learn the hard way. I got the answer, but I didn't hang up the phone. I kept listening in case somebody would say, there's actually a bit more that you haven't. You didn't know this, but there's actually loads more. For me, there's not. Um, so I'll finish by saying up until this point, you know, I felt like me and my addiction and my childhood traumas and my mom and all that kind of stuff. I felt like it was a big pot of fucking stew and I didn't want to eat it really. And I didn't know what to do with it. And it was all so complicated and I'd never unravel it. And actually, that's not the case at all. I have found the solution to my issue would be going back to doing that little bit of therapy, mending that relationship with my mother. But most importantly, keeping an eye on me and my own bullshit and making sure that I don't use whatever trauma I have had as an excuse to brutalize other people and to treat them like shit. Because for a while that was grand, but the road gets narrow. And for a long time now, if I'm even on the verge of taking my stuff out on someone else, uh, I just don't get away with it. I just feel like a piece of shit. The only things that make me feel really, really shit these days are as if I don't sleep properly. That's a fucking given. I've never gotten better at that. If I don't sleep properly and I have an eight-month-old daughter at the moment now 
who's unfortunately very unreasonable. She's a particularly unreasonable kid and uh, we're not sleeping at the moment, the two of us. <laughs> but uh, that and treating people like shit are the only things these days that make me feel completely depressed. And that's my body and mind's way of telling me what's what and what's not. So at that point, guys, I'm going to shut up. I don't think I've ever talked that long uh, consecutively about myself. I have to say I enjoyed it and I think I'm going to do much more of it going forward. It's been a privilege to speak to you and I'm going to shut up right here, right now. Thank you.